This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. You can find it on page 986 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. Uh, Really glad to be back with you. Um, We were on sabbatical this summer, and this is my 14th year here at the church, so every seven years our pastoral staff gets a uh, a little time away uh, on sabbatical, and uh, so this is my second chance to do that. And uh, we were traveled a lot as a family, June and July, and uh, it was great to get away. And then in August, we were back and just kind of laid low. The kids got back into their routines, their fall routines, and uh, we got to rest a good bit. But it is uh, really glad to be back. Uh, we're happy to be uh, with you this morning. I'm happy to be with you this morning. We're glad to be back. And I'm really glad to be able to help you get started on this new series today as we're this fall, going to be working through First Thessalonians. Paul's, some people think Paul's earliest letter, uh, if not his early, maybe Galatians, maybe First Thessalonians, one of, one of the two, anyway. Uh, this is one of his earliest uh, letters. And today we're going to look at just the first chapter. And the title of the sermon comes from a phrase, really the last line of a Wendell Berry poem called The Mad Farmer Liberation Fronts. And uh, the last line of that poem is Practice Resurrection. Practice resurrection. And Eugene Peterson ripped off that line and and used it as the title of one of his books. And he he says that phrase, practice resurrection, is actually a really good description of what the Apostle Paul calls all Christians to and these early churches to in 1 Thessalonians and really throughout all of Paul's letters. He said you could sum up what Paul's saying by that phrase, practice resurrection. And here's what Peterson says. He says, and I think we have the words there, yeah, the practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that trumps death, 
life that is the last word, Jesus' life. This practice is not a vague wish upwards, but comprises a number of discreet but interlocking acts that maintain a credible and faithful way of life, real life, in a world preoccupied with death and the devil. And later on, Peterson says, when we do this together collectively, we become a colony of heaven and a country of death. It's a really good phrase, a really good description of what we're trying to do here, to be a colony of heaven and a country of death. And so we're going to be talking about that throughout this series. What does it mean to lean into the gospel reality, the gospel story that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again? What does it mean to practice resurrection? And so that's what we're going to talk about in this series. And this morning, like I said, we're just going to look at the first chapter. And I really want to talk about it under two headings. The two things we're going to see this morning, we're going to talk first about the story of this church, this church that Paul plants in Thessalonica. We're going to learn about who this church is, how they came to be, and and in so doing, really see some things that are true really of every church that has an encounter with the risen Christ. So first, the story of the church, but then second, we're going to talk about some concrete ways that this group of early Christians were practicing resurrection, and then how you can too. All right? So first... The story of this church, all right? Right at the beginning is a greeting, verse 1, typical of ancient letters, ancient greetings, typical of Paul's letters. He starts out St. Paul, Silvanus, other other places it's Silas, same person. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. This is Paul's mission team, and it says they're writing to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Later this week, you might want to turn to Acts 17, because it tells the story of the planting of this church in greater detail. Paul's the church planter. He goes to Thessalonica, which is the capital city in Macedonia, an important city, or a Roman city, the largest city in the region. It was strategically located on the Via Ignatia, the great Roman highway to the east, so all kinds of people coming through, lots of trade, lots of different people coming through. Acts chapter 17 then tells us that as Paul goes there, he begins to preach and to teach, and for three consecutive Sabbath days, he's the main speaker at the local synagogue. It says in Acts 17, it says, some of the Jews, upon hearing Paul, through his preaching, they began to believe in Jesus. But it goes on and says, even more, a great many of the devout Greeks began to believe, and not a few of the leading women of the city believed in Jesus. And so Paul then begins to spend time with these folks. He invests in them. He encourages them. This is his core group. And he sets up a church. Now, this is about 49 AD. And so if you're doing the math, this is 16, 17 years after Jesus' ministry, after his death. But then, uh, Acts 17 goes on to record, some persecution comes. And there's not only danger to Paul, but... Uh, to all who helped him, all who supported him, all who came alongside him. And, and Acts tells, uh, describes a riot happening. They attack the house of a man named Jason. He's one of the early converts in this church. And so Paul is forced to leave under the cover of darkness. But he, he never stops caring about this church. He never stops caring for this church. And so, you know, they're, they're still very new church. They're very young Christians. And Paul sends Timothy back to see them, to meet with them, to encourage them. Timothy then brings a report back to Paul And then it's based on that report, then, he writes this letter. So that's why we have it. And Paul starts the letter here by thanking God, because though this church is young, they're doing really well. And as he recounts their story of faith, we learn some things about how this church has come to be, and really how all genuine churches 
come to be. And the first thing I want you to see here is that the church exists because of the gospel. The church exists because of the gospel. Verse 5, Paul says, because our gospel came to you. Verse 6, you received the word or you received the message. And the word gospel, you might know, it means good news. Paul's message, his word, the one that Paul proclaimed, the one the Thessalonians received, was an announcement of good news. Now, good news about what? Well, good news about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 17. It says in Acts 17, verse 1, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So the good news, right, the gospel message, the announcement is that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins. And not only that, he was raised from the dead and he goes to prepare a place for us in heaven. If we would come to him, believe in him, rest in him. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. Uh, because maybe you've heard, maybe, maybe even yourself you've come to believe Right, that the resurrection, um, these claims about Jesus being the Son of God or, or being God in the flesh, these are things, maybe you've come to believe this uh, or you've heard the objection, right? these are things that grew up over years and years and years. Right? That Jesus was a great teacher. Maybe he was a very ethical man. Maybe, he was, maybe he's the greatest teacher of all time. But these other ideas about Jesus coming down from heaven, Jesus rising from the dead, these are, are legends. These are mythology that grew up over many, many centuries. Maybe you've heard that before. Now, what's the answer to that? This letter, 1 Thessalonians, is written just 17 years after Jesus' death. And by the way, everybody agrees on this, right? Liberal scholars, conservative scholars, it doesn't matter. All across, anybody who studies antiquity, uh, the ancient world, there's early attestation, there's manuscript evidence. Everyone agrees this letter is really early, within two decades of the life of Jesus. 17 years, that's not a long time. That's like a Joey Votto career, right? <laughs> by the way, it's Joey Votto's birthday today. 40, 40 years old, Joey Votto. Uh, 17 years. Not a long time, right? Some of you can remember back when, when, when Joey Votto wasn't on the Reds, right? Uh, and look, what, what Paul and, and the early church, look at what they're saying about Jesus just 17 years after his ministry. Verse 1, Paul refers to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the same breath. Verse 10, he calls Jesus the Son of God who comes down from heaven. He rose from the dead, Paul says. He's the one who can rescue us on judgment day. These are not ideas that develop over centuries and centuries. These are not legends that grow around the, the mythology of Jesus. This is what the church is built on. This is the gospel. This is the confession of early Christians. And this is helpful not only to remember what the church is built on, but it's also helpful to remember, right, uh, for some who are here this morning maybe wondering, you know, what, is it, what does it actually mean to be a Christian? What do I have to believe in order to be a Christian? There's another place where Paul summarizes this, Romans chapter 10. I read it to Maya a little bit earlier. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the good news that Paul proclaims, the Thessalonians received, that, that churches are built upon. That's the first thing. But, but he goes on. Because Paul says in verse 5, 
it's not just that our gospel came to you in word only, but it came also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel came to them, he says, in power. Again, in Romans, Paul says the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And he says the Holy Spirit is at work in this. It's not just human arguments. It's not just uh, our philosophizing. It's not just um, human eloquence. But the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is at work when the gospel takes root and forms a church community. And by the way here also, just notice this by way of parentheses, but just notice here in chapter 1, Paul mentions the Father, verse 1. Jesus the Son, verse 10. Mentions the Holy Spirit, verse 5. In other words, all three persons of the Trinity. Christianity believes there's one God and three persons. Again, this is also not a later add-on. But right here at the very beginning, the Christian faith, this is what Christians confess. So Paul says it comes not just in word, but in power, the Holy Spirit, and then with full conviction. Now what does that mean? In full conviction. It means when they heard the gospel, it landed. Right? It stuck. To use the old language, they were cut to the heart. Now, what does that look like when it happens to somebody? You know, in the beginning, when you're looking into Christianity, for a lot of us, most of us, maybe all of us, it might mostly be, uh, you know, an intellectual exercise. Right? We're looking at the information. We're looking at the facts. We're comparing notes. This is, this is some other ideas of what I could believe. This is what Christians believe. Maybe you're sifting through information. It's mostly just ideas, right? You're talking to others uh, who seem to know more about it. That's how it starts. But, but for those who come to know Jesus, there comes a time somewhere where this grabs you, where this grabs you. It's not about information anymore. It, it, it lands. Tim Keller says, Christianity, Christianity isn't something you take up. It takes you up. Christianity isn't something you take up. It takes you up. That is, you start out thinking you're the one who's seeking God, but you find out he's the one who's been seeking me. You start out thinking you're investigating Christianity, but you start to sense, wow, maybe, maybe Christianity's putting me under the microscope. Right? You, you're convicted. You're disrupted. You're affected. You're cut to the heart. It's certainly the case for me. As a 17-year-old, I, I went to a camp. Colorado, Frontier Ranch. I thought I was there to check out Christianity. Actually, truth be told, I thought I was there to meet girls, but (laughs) also to investigate Christianity. I thought I was there investigating Christianity. What I found is that Christianity was dealing with me. The gospel was grabbing me. There was a force, there was a power to the message of Jesus. It came on me with conviction. I think this is one of the reasons Paul says in verse 4, he has chosen you. Now, there are other places in the Bible that foreground our responsibility, our free will, human agency. That's there for sure. But here in our text, Paul foregrounds God's agency. He says, God chose you, Thessalonians. Sometimes there, in other places, there's the terminology of calling, right? God calls you. And what Paul's saying is there is a work that the Holy Spirit has to do for us even to be open to the gospel. Some work that God is doing prior to our investigation or behind our investigation. And for many people, this takes the place of some sort of disruption in your life, some sort of bump, some sort of jolt in your life. And maybe it's pain, maybe it's disappointment, 
Maybe it's some disenchantment with how you thought things were going to go or the things you were hoping in, and you begin to ask some fundamental questions about life. One classic story of this is the the story of Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a a rising star as a physician in England. Young man, he was was doing great, killing it at work. And one day, the chief of medicine at his hospital, the man that he looked up to, the man he wanted to be, right? This is is his goal in life, was to have this guy's job, to have this guy's life. And, And this man's girlfriend had died tragically. And Lloyd-Jones is watching his friend, his mentor, his hero, he's watching his life fall apart. And for the first time, Lloyd-Jones realizes that the things that he had been working for, all the professional success and accomplishment in the world, could not insulate him from pain like this. And so he begins to ask the big questions. What's life about? What in the end will last? What, What would sustain me if something like this came crashing into my life. And the gospel grabbed him. The gospel, Paul says, didn't just come with words. It came with power. It came with the working of the Holy Spirit. It came with conviction. And I want to say just one more thing about this because I I really think it is so important. And it's my first Sunday back, so you have to indulge me. Um, Paul says in another place, 2 Corinthians 4, he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that phrase, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, glory means weight, right? Substance, weightiness, value. And so what he's saying is when the message of Jesus lands with conviction, it means that the weight of who Jesus is and what he has done, it lands on you, it presses on you, That's what happens when the gospel message comes with conviction. And C.S. Lewis wrote a little bit about this in an essay called What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? Here's what he says. He says, what are we to make of Christ? There's no question of what we can make of him. It's entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. The things he says are very different from what any other teacher has said. Others say, this is the truth about the universe. This is the way you ought to go. But Jesus says, I am the truth and the way and the life. He says, no man can reach reach absolute reality except through me. Try to retain your own life and you will be inevitably ruined. Give yourself away and you will be saved. He says, if you are ashamed of me, if when you hear this call, you can turn the other way, I also will look the other way when I come again as God without disguise. If anything, whatever is keeping you from God and from me, whatever it is, throw it away. If it's your eye, pull it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. If you put yourself first, you'll be last. Come to me, everyone who is carrying a heavy load. I will set that right. Your sins, all of them are wiped out. I can do that. I am rebirth. I am life. Eat me. Drink me. I am your food. And finally, do not be afraid. I have overcome the whole universe. That's the issue. Have you come to that point? Do you sense that the real question is not what do I make of him, but what will he make of me? Have you been disturbed? Have you been rattled? Have you been cut to the heart by the message of Jesus? If so, that's a good sign. Because it's an indication that God is working, even if you can't make sense of it all yet. 
And last thing here, right? The story of this church is the gospel came to them, and not just with words, but Paul says with power, with conviction, the Holy Spirit. But then thirdly, it began to change their lives. They begin to live on earth in a way that is fit for the kingdom. This is what Paul is giving thanks for, right? The gospel has really made a difference in their lives. And there's evidence of this. He says, verse 6, they have joy. Joy even in the midst of affliction, which is countercultural, right? Counterhuman even, you might say. Right? To have joy that's not based on circumstances, not based on the highs and lows of how things are going, but a joy that is resting somewhere deeper. And then in verse 3, it says, they have faith and hope and love. Actually, faith, love, and hope. Faith, hope, and love is the 1 Corinthians 13 way to put it. But here, Paul gives hope the the exclamation point because they're in the midst of suffering, and so they're holding on to that hope. But the main point here, their lives have been changed. They've been reoriented up towards God and faith, out towards others and love, on towards the kingdom and hope. And this is the story in the Thessalonian church. And to some extent, it's the story of our church and really the story of every church that has an encounter with the good news of the risen Christ. But for the last couple of minutes, I just want to highlight three practical ways that the Thessalonians were leaning into this, right? The gospel comes to them. It comes with conviction. Their lives are changed. How do they practice resurrection? How do they lean into this story Right? Three practical ways to practice resurrection. Because remember, Eugene Peterson said, this practice is not a vague wish upwards, but it comprises a number of discreet but interlocking acts that maintain a credible and faithful way of life, real life, in a world preoccupied with death and the devil. Let me read to you just a little bit more. Here's what Peterson goes on to say. He says, these practices include the worship of God and all the operations of the Trinity, the acceptance of an identity born from above in baptism, the embrace of resurrection by eating and drinking Christ's resurrection body and blood at the Lord's table, attentive reading of and attention to the revelation of God and the scriptures, prayer that cultivates an intimacy with realities that are inaccessible to our senses, confession and forgiveness of sins, welcoming the stranger and the outcast, working and speaking for peace and justice, healing and truth, sanctity and beauty, care for all the stuff of creation. He says the company of people who practice resurrection replicates the way of Jesus on the highways and the byways named and numbered on all the maps of the world. This is the church. And let me just name three ways. Right, of all the things that Peterson teases there, let me just name three ways that the church at Thessalonica was doing this, at least in chapter one, all right? Three ways. Number one, and these are ways we can practice resurrection too. Number one, imitation. Verse six says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. We become followers of Jesus, not just by information download. That's not how it works. It's not listening to a TED talk and mastering the concepts. But rather, we are apprenticed into discipleship. The people we're around, the folks that we look up to, the ones we give our attention to, they affect how we understand God, how we follow Jesus, how we go out into the world and mission. You might say more is caught than taught about the way of Jesus. Paul says, you became imitators of us. And I like how Chris Curry, pastor in Philadelphia, how he paraphrases this. He says, uh, what Paul's saying really is, "You've you've been riding along with us. You've been riding along with us. Who are you riding along with? 
Who do you imitate? There's a conscious version of this, right? Who you give your attention to? Who do you listen to? Who do you make sure that you're prioritizing spending time with? But there's a more passive version of this too, right? What culture do we adopt? What kinds of groups do we just slide into easily? Who sets the bar for us for what is normal? Who do you imitate? But then also, who imitates you? You see, the Thessalonians imitated Paul and Silas and Timothy, but they also became examples for others. Look down at verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And Eugene Peterson translates this. He says, we don't have to say anything anymore. You're the message. We don't have to say anything anymore. You're the message. That is, people around you at work and at school and in the neighborhood, they may not be reading the Bible, but they sure are reading your life. And so what is it saying? So let me give you a little homework assignment, all right, for this week to think about. Number one, find somebody to imitate. Find someone to imitate. And ideally, this should not be somebody from the internet, all right? But somebody that you can know up close, somebody that you can watch and see. So be thinking to yourself, who are the mature Christ followers that I know? Who are the people in my life who I know who have real wisdom? Now, don't overwhelm them, but try to find ways to ride along, to be near, to be attentive, and then just ask a lot of questions and listen a lot and watch their life. So that's number one. Find somebody to imitate, but the second part of your homework is be willing to welcome others into your life when they want to ride along with you, right? Don't have such high boundaries or such solidified walls that there's not room for others who may want to ride along with you. Make some room for folks who want to imitate you. That's part of our calling as the church and as Christians. All right, so number one, ways to practice resurrection, imitation. But number two, verse nine, says that the Thessalonians were turning from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now, this is Bob Dylan stuff, right? you got to serve somebody, Dylan says, right? Every one of us is serving something. And in a Roman city like Thessalonica, the most ordinary thing in the world would be to go along with the emperor cult, right? The Romans held that Caesar was God or at least kind of a, a pseudo-divine being in some way. And so there's all kinds of ceremonies and rituals where you could pledge your allegiance to the emperor. You could do your obeisance to him, you could show your uh, 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 allegiance to the empire. Now, remember I said in Acts 17, there was a riot, there was persecution, forced Paul to leave the little church that he started, but I didn't tell you the why behind that persecution, did I? Or sh I should say, I didn't tell you the charges that were made against Paul and the early church that they used to justify these attacks. Let me read it to you really quickly. Acts 17, verse 5, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, and here's the charge, saying that there is another king. Jesus. The charge leveled against them is that they had pledged their allegiance to another king. 
Rather than go along and do what the rest of the culture was doing, Christians are called then and now to turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now, maybe that's not, you know, it's not emperor worship for you that competes in your heart for allegiance and for trust, although for some of us, Right? The way we approach politics, the way we approach a particular party, that faith we might put in a particular election, we act like it's pretty close to a savior. If not, that might be an idol we might need to turn from, but, but if it's not that, what are the other ones? What are the other idols we're tempted to put our trust in? In the, in the West, money, sex, and power tend to top the list. Maybe it's achievement. Maybe it's a relationship, a romantic relationship. What are the things, that, to find out what your idols are, ask yourself the question, what are the things that I think will truly save me? What are the things that will, will truly make me happy? Or to, to reverse it, put it in the negative, what are the things that if they were taken away, it would make life not worth living? That's how you know what your idols are, what you've given your heart to. To practice resurrection is to turn away, right, from the dead and empty promises of idols of the world and to turn to the living and true Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is something we do initially when we come to know Jesus, but it's something we continue to do as Christians. Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. We're always needing to turn from our pseudo-saviors. William Coopersham, oh, for a closer walk. There's a line in there I really like. Uh, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol may be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. To practice resurrection means imitation, means turning from idols, and then thirdly, it means waiting for Jesus. Verse 10, Paul says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, Paul goes on to talk about last things, end times, judgment day, the return of Christ, more in the later chapters. And we'll get a chance to talk about, about those more in depth in the future weeks. And then even more when we come back to 2 Thessalonians after Easter in the spring. But for today, let me just say this. The classic formulation of the Christian faith is this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ will come again. To wait for that, to wait for Jesus, is to put ourselves in a posture of prayerful patience, to put ourselves in a posture of contentment and trust, longing for and waiting for Jesus to return. We look to Jesus, not to the emperor, not to an election, not to a relationship, not to a change in circumstances, to be our ultimate deliverer. None of those things will die for you. None of those things will rise again for you. None of those things will prepare a place in heaven for you. And so we wait for Jesus. Jesus walked the road to death. He bore the cross for our sins. He rose again for our justification. It's for this reason, verse 10 says, he can deliver us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the dispenser of wrath, Paul will tell us later. He's the rightful king. He's going to come one day to judge the world, to cleanse it from evil, to remove all that threatens what is good and true and noble and beautiful. Jesus is the dispenser of wrath at the end. But here's the good news. He's also the deliverer from it because he suffered wrath for his people and all who take refuge in him will be saved. That's good news. And so let's lean into this. Friends, let's find some people to ride along with 
Let's help each other turn from our idols and turn toward Jesus and then wait for him. Posture ourselves to long for his coming, to live into the kingdom, to practice resurrection. So let's pray. Let's take a moment, actually, just to be silent for a moment. Pray to yourself, and then we'll, we'll pray together and come to the Lord's Supper. Let's just take a moment of quiet to reflect a bit. God, our Father, we pray this morning for the conviction of the gospel to land on us. For some of us, maybe for the very first time. For others, we pray that it would land in a new way. And we ask for your spirit to stir us up in faith and hope and love. Would you lead us to people that we can ride along with as we grow in our faith? And would you make us open to others who may want to ride along with us? Would you use this time this morning, even this time when we come to communion, to draw us ever deeper into the gospel story, the story that we proclaim, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And now we pray the words that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a member in good standing of a church that proclaims his gospel, then we invite you to come and to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it. In remembrance of me. And Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The way that we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning is we'll have two stations down here in front. So if you're on the main floor, you can come down the center aisle, go back to your seats along the side aisles. In the balcony, we'll have one station to my left, to your right. Uh, and when you come, each of the stations, a server will hold out to you a loaf of bread. I encourage you to break off a, a big piece of bread. And then you can dip it in either the wine or the juice. Both will be available at all of our stations. If you uh, require a gluten-free option, we'll have baskets at each of the stations that have uh, gluten-free bread and individually packaged juice uh, there that you can use as well. So let's bow our heads. Let's give thanks to the Lord. Let me ask our servers to pray as we do that, and then we'll be ready to invite you to the Lord's Supper with us this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do give you thanks that through Christ. We become children of the light. Jesus has opened the eyes uh, of our hearts and our minds, and he's opened the gates of heaven to receive his faithful people. His death is our ransom from death. His resurrection is our rising to life. And the joy of the resurrection renews the whole world. And so, as we commune at your table this morning, we ask that you would prepare us and send us out in the power of your spirit that we might 
practice resurrection. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Friends, the gifts of God for the people of God come as you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.